You're listening to the Gavel and Pestle Podcast with Darshan Kulkarni. The Gavel and Pestle Podcast, where the law of the land intersects with the business of pharmacy. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to the Gavel and Pestle Podcast. This is your host, Darshan Kulkarni. Remember, the advice given is not, it is not legal advice. So talk to your lawyer for advice that may be right for you. Also, talk to your doctor that may be, may be good for advice that's right for you. Talk to someone who knows you. Hey, hey, all right. Thank you so much for coming back to another Gavel and Pestle podcast. It is exciting to be able to have a new segment to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And what do you know? Darshan is back. Hey, Darshan, how are you today? I'm doing great, Todd. How are you doing today? Good. You know, the pace of this has just been phenomenal. The Twitter feedback and the feedback I've been getting from LinkedIn is also phenomenal. I want to say thank you to the listeners. But Darshan, I want to say thank you to you for doing this and dedicating yourself to this portion of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be part of it. And yeah, the, uh, the response has been excellent. People have been talking to me about it. So I'm really, really happy. I'm, I'm so excited to be part of this whole program. So if this is the first time you're listening to the Gavel and Pestle podcast, this is the fusion of law and pharmacy in multiple different subjects that are going to come up. It's not going to just be me and Darshan. It's going to be you, the listeners, that are going to come up with some of the ideas, too. And uh, Darshan really has some great ideas for upcoming shows. But before we get into telling you what's happening from a podcast perspective Darshan, you have some news about the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and I just want to get right to this. Uh, This is very important information for our listeners, and this is coming at you. This is late breaking, so definitely pay attention to this. Thanks, Todd. So here's sort of how I like to set this up. Um, I've written a lot of non-competes. I've written written a lot of uh, employment agreements for my clients. And um, when you're in a pharmacy, uh, whether you're working in a hospital, whether you are, so if you're a director in a hospital, or if you are a manager, an owner of a small compounding pharmacy, you always have these employment agreements with your uh, technicians, with your other pharmacists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A very standard thing to include in all of these is what's called the non-compete clause. So what does your non-compete clause say? The non-compete clause says, um, you can't work for competitors with my ideas because you don't. I don't want you taking my stuff and walking away. Well, that sort of makes sense, right? That makes yep. the idea that my stuff is mine and you can't have it. You can't give it to my competitors so that they get a competitive advantage over me. Well, it may not be as simple as that. The Fourth Circuit, which is Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina – came out very recently, and when I say very recently, I mean within the last couple of days, and said that overly broad non-compete agreements may not be enforceable. So here's what actually happened. Uh, There was this this court case, RLM Communications versus Tushin, and in that, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals invalidated just such a provision. So RLM is a cybersecurity organization, and they had a non-compete with uh, one of their uh, people, the, they had an employee who was a director of information assurance, and um, she was going to go to their new to her new employer. RLM had a standard clause in their agreements that says, "While I, the employee, am employed by employer, 
And for one year afterwards, I will not directly or indirectly participate in a business that is similar to a business now or later operated by employer in the same geographical area. This includes participating as a uh, co-owner, director, officer, consultant, independent contractor, employee, or agent of other business. So that's really the clause. The clause basically saying, I'll work for you for a year afterwards. I won't go participate in another business like yours. So the court looked at North Carolina law and they said that the law basically disfavors covenants not to compete. It doesn't it doesn't recommend it is not a big fan of the idea that employees can't go work in other places. So using that concept, the Fourth Circuit rejected our argument and said that the non-compete was unenforceable against the former employee. The court found that the non-compete restriction was overly broad. Well, the question then is, well, how was it overly broad? The court said that it prohibited the uh, former employee from working not only in a current position at the competitor, but also prohibit, prohibited her from mowing their lawns, catering their business lunches, and serving as a realtor. Basically, she couldn't work with them in any capacity. Well, that's a little broad, isn't it? Um, the court also took on this idea that this indirect participation in similar businesses would also be problematic because what if she had retirement accounts in mutual funds and she'd then have to start looking at their holdings to make sure that they weren't invested in companies similar to RLM. Well, how does this all apply to pharmacy? This all applies to pharmacy because you're getting a technician who are typically um, just counting pills in most cases. Every, every so often they may be doing some business uh, uh, ordering and the like. And if you put a non-compete in, in there, is that going to be enforceable? So that's the first question. The second question is what is the impact of the non-enforceability of that one clause on the rest of the clause? So every so often the courts will basically say the agreement itself is non-enforceable because this one little clause is in there. What you can sometimes do is by say, is that say, um, well, you can number one, fix your non-compete. And we'll talk about what those kinds of steps could be. Number two, what you could do is also do what's called a severability clause. And what that basically means is that um, you say that if any component of this agreement, of my employment agreement, is problematic, only that component can be declared uh, invalid. The rest of the agreement continues to stand. So you kind of want that in your agreements anyways, because you don't want a situation where all your employment agreements get thrown out. So so your takeaways really become you want you want a severability clause in there. Then um, restrictions on post-employment focus should focus on what the employee gained and the skills and information that employee gained during his or her employment. So be specific about that and, and, and kind of take that and learn from there. Um, I also want to use this moment to talk a little bit about a similar issue that happened. Uh, and this has been sort of uh, coming up over the last couple of months. There, there was the Jimmy John's case. And in Jimmy John's, you basically had it's uh, for those of you who don't know, Jimmy John's is a uh, place that makes sandwiches. And there was a settlement recently. And we can talk about that in a few seconds. But basically what happened was you had these non-compete agreements with people who are basically making sandwiches. And the uh, Department of Labor and the Federal Trade Commission um, were very unhappy with this. And, and members of Congress asked the Labor Department and the FTC to investigate Jimmy John's over the use of non-competes. Basically what Jimmy John's did was it used these non-compete agreements with franchisees 
uh, and this began in like December 2014, and the agreements barred departing employees from taking jobs with competitors of Jimmy John's for two years after leaving the company and from working within two miles of a Jimmy John's store in a store that made more than 10% of its revenue from sandwiches. Again, same basic concept, the idea that my employees can go work for someone else. Well, that may be true, but you're preventing someone else from working and making their job, basically making sandwiches, and that may be too much. So they had a settlement that came down on June 22nd of 2016 with, with the New York, Attorney, New York Attorney General's office. And here's what the uh, New York Attorney General said. Non-compete agreements uh, for for low-wage workers are unconscionable. They limit mobility and opportunity for vulnerable workers and bully them into staying with a threat of being sued. Companies should stop using these agreements for minimum wage employees. Again, think of your technicians. Think of pharmacists who only work there every so often and aren't doing anything specific or novel or new. You don't want a situation where the attorney general's office is looking over your shoulder. You don't want a situation where um, someone's coming in and saying, this is not appropriate. We're going to sue you. Does that sort of make sense? Does anyone have, if anyone has any questions, you should feel free to reach out to Todd or me, and we'd be happy to give more details around this. As I'm listening to you say this, I'm looking at it from two sides. So I'm the employee, I'm the Uh pharmacist, or I'm the technician. And I'm at the last part of the interview stages. I'm excited because now all of a sudden I received an offer letter. Inside my offer letter, it says this offer is contingent upon a drug screen, a non-compete, a background check, stuff like that. Basically, some of these organizations just give you a pack of papers and stuff. And inside that, it just so happens to be a non-compete. So. As someone who understands uh, the stress of providing for my family and having a good position and a good job, I, you know, I look at that uh, non-compete, but I, I look at it as part of the process. And I think from what you're saying is I should be just a little bit more cognizant of what details are inside that non-compete. Very true. And that's that's a huge of what I'm saying. So. As an employee, you should absolutely be reading what you do. So um, one of the things, Todd, I do is that I teach at the University of the Sciences. I teach um, in their biomedical writing program. And one of the things we talk about is uh, I I teach one of the courses called um, Law and Ethics. And in that course, a lot of my students land up becoming contractors. Therefore, one of the assignments that I have is that I have them read their own agreement and find out what they should have read or found before they would have assigned that agreement. And there's a negotiation where one person plays the employer, one person plays the employee. And they find things in their agreements that they never thought were in there. And that becomes very, very important. So exactly to your point, Todd, I think it's it's more and more important that people read the agreements. You may or may not have bargaining power. And there's a whole other discussion to be had what are called adhesion contracts. But the idea that at least you know what you're signing because you want to sign them and you want to be part of that organization. But organizations can put things in there that may be overkill. And these are situations that, you, that like you're finding where that's exactly happening. Um, non-compete agreements are very standard as are waivers and other similar agreements. 
Um, we could have a dis- we could we could keep talking about non competes because <laughs> each circuit deals with them slightly differently. But overall, um, is this general concept that the broader you get, the less likely it's going to be enforceable. But you just have to be very careful about how you do this, and each state will deal with it differently. Let's flip the coin for a second, Darshan, and let's be uh-huh. the owner of a specialty pharmacy that works mm-hmm. in fertility that has a very uh-huh. specific process in place that really puts them in an t- entire different echelon of services and the way that they manage their patient, the way that they communicate with the physician, their CRM system technology that collects the data, possibly some of their processes and relationships with other manufacturers, whatever that is, and I'm throwing out a ton of examples, as the yeah. employer, as that private employer, don't I have a right to nail down some of my exclusivity to, to, give, to give me a competitive edge to ensure that that pharmacist or that technician that is inside my business has worked with me for two years, three years to really uh, build the business? Don't I have that right to really lock some of those proprietary things down? Excellent question, Todd. So you absolutely have a right. The question is, how do you enforce that right? So one way, maybe by saying, oh, we're just going to prevent the person from not working. Well, maybe, but that's using a mallet to solve a problem that a syringe would solve. Um, There may be better ways of doing that. So there's a concept out there. um, Well, you, you could file patents on the technology that you find proprietary, but not everything is patentable. So what you could also do is do what are called trade secrets. Uh, and trade secrets are basically, um, shall we say, proprietary information that is specific to your organization. And you use that information and you take you put appropriate controls in place. And only certain people get access to certain information. And uh, you control and manage that technology appropriately. And when you do that and manage it in a specific way, what you might be able to do is protect that same information in, uh, in a way that is enforceable. Trade secrets cannot be disclosed as long as you're taking appropriate steps to protect it. So if you're only telling certain people about certain information, for example, recipes, for example, um, because they are proprietary to your company, the courts may say that is absolutely protectable. Obviously, there are downsized trade secrets, um, things like if someone else figures it out by reverse engineering the technology, that may be okay. But the the idea is in the vast majority of cases, most people can't do that. The most famous trade secret is the Coca-Cola recipe. And it's been alive and active for over a hundred years at this point. So trade secrets do work. Patents may be another direction, but um, using a non-compete may very well be part of your arsenal. But if you start depending on it too much and you start making it too broad, you have exactly this problem, which is you have the court system and you have the attorney general's office and you have um, the, the FTC and the DOJ all looking over your shoulder. And is that really the kind of attention you're looking for? So I thought the greatest trade secret ever was Bush baked beans and that silly dog that was always trying to give away the uh, the formula on the commercials. That's that's the one that I was thinking about. Duke, Duke, that uh, crazy <laughs> dog. 
I did not see that ad, but it sounds really funny. <laughs> Maybe we can put a link to that. Hey, I'm going to um, put a link down out. in the show notes. It's going to be Bush Baked Beans, and it's going to be the YouTube video of Duke, the crazy <laughs> dog, trying to give away Jay's family secret. That's what we're going to do. So obviously you that can't have a dog good. signing on compete or a, or a, or a trade secret deal, right? Well, no, unfortunately, unfortunately, <laughs> however, if he is going to give that deal away, I would control my trade secret in, in a better way. If he can still do it. Yeah. And so it, I would control probably, my dog and make sure he can't walk away. Probably illegal to shoot the dog too. So don't do that. <laughs> probably. <laughs> don't Besides, don't shoot the, the dog. That's don't right, shoot your employees. Dogs. Don't shoot anybody. Just don't even think about it. Just keep it civil. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Hire yourself a good lawyer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, it's been a quick um, gavel and pestle podcast, but I wanted to get you on because I knew that this was um, kind of burning. I know that you're going on a trip. We're going to come back. We're going to tackle some issues. In the meantime, if you're an employer, if you're an employee, and I tell you what, that probably gets at least 99% of the people out there listening, throw some questions out to Darshan. Uh, go to at FDA Lawyers, which is his Twitter handle, or at Gavel and Pestle, um, or even at Pharmacy Podcast, and just send us some questions through Twitter. Uh, Darshan, you are so... Uh, dedicated, and uh, you tweet a lot. So I know that you'll be able to get back to some of our listeners' uh, ideas and questions. I would love to get back to the listeners and questions. I do want to remind everyone, I don't give legal advice via the podcast or via Twitter, but I love engaging in conversations and, and thought processes. And if we do actually have an attorney-client relationship, I'd be happy to give you an answer that's specific to what you do. But um, overall, we're just having conversations. That's right. Excellent. Well, Darshan, thanks for uh, being here and being part of this and, and really being the thought leader in, in a segment that I think is extremely important. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Duke? Jay and Duke talking action figures. My idea. Love it. Let's see what I say. Roll that beautiful bean footage. Bush's country-style baked beans are slow-cooked according to our secret family recipe with specially cured bacon and extra brown sugar for a thicker sauce and a richer taste. The secret family recipe starts with beans and bacon. Batteries not included. Aw, oh, you're no fun. Enjoy Bush's baked beans. Still made from our secret family recipe.